Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say that you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier, and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. I forgot to mention before that uh, when you ask your friend or whoever it is that, uh, that question, how would you fix the world, it would be great if you could write their answer down on a piece of paper and put it in the communication box in the foyer or, uh, or send me an email letting me know what it is so that we can just get an idea of uh, what people are thinking. Let's, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for the way that you led Abram and uh, guided him. And Father, we pray that as we think about his life uh, and the things that you did in his life, that you'd help us to learn more about you. And Lord, Father, that you would teach us to trust you. Father, we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, one of the, uh, the things uh, that distinguishes Christianity from pretty much every other major religion is that salvation is by grace through faith. That is, we're saved uh, into a relationship with God, not based on what we do uh, or, or the, where we were born, but based on trusting in God's promises to Jesus, uh, in Jesus. It's based on taking God at his word, believing what God says about Jesus. But one of the remarkable things I think about the Christian life is that even though we're saved by faith, the Christian life is a life of learning to trust God more and more deeply, a life of learning to believe God more and more. The faith that saves, Jesus says, is faith that is as small as the grain of a, uh, of a mustard seed. But genuine faith also is a growing faith a faith which deepens more and more every day. We come to trust God more and more every day and, and live in accordance with that trust more and more in more and more ways. If you were here last week, you might remember that at the beginning of chapter 12, God made promises to Abram and Abram believed God. Abram believed God's promise. God called him to go to another land and Abram went. 
And this morning, in these three scenes that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to not look at not just those verses there from chapter 12, but uh, from chapter 13 and chapter 14. In the three scenes that we're going to look at, we find Abram is not a man who believes God 100%, but is a man who is struggling to trust God and a man who is growing in his trust uh, of God. Well, at the beginning of the section that Jacob read for us, uh, we see that the viability of God's promise comes under threat. God had told Abram to go to this land, this far-off land, but we're told in verse 10 of chapter 12 that there was a famine in the land and that this famine is so severe that Abram decides to leave uh, the land that God had told him to go to and to go down to Egypt. The journey to Egypt is complicated by the fact that Abram's wife Sarah is really, really good-looking. And Abram is afraid that when the Egyptians see Sarai, they're going to kill Abram and the Pharaoh will take Sarai as his wife. So he devises a cunning plan in a spectacularly despicable act of self-preservation. He manages to convince his wife that she should pretend to be his sister so that they won't kill Abram and so that Pharaoh can indeed take Sarai to be his wife. While the plan looks to be working, Abram becomes filthy rich. He gets sheep and cattle and donkeys, camels, servants, and God afflicts Pharaoh and his household with all kinds of diseases. But eventually Pharaoh cottons on to the fact that something's not quite right. And he ends up calling Abram in and asking him the perfectly reasonable question, why he decided to lie. Here we have the pagan ruler of a pagan nation calling in the man of God, in inverted commas, the man of God asking him why he's deceived him. Pharaoh kicks Abram and Sarai out of Egypt and they end up returning to where they came from. And it's as they return to the place that they came from at the beginning of chapter 13 that the underlying problem becomes clear. There are these ominous words in verse 3 of chapter 13. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Abram returns to where his tent had been earlier. He returns to the place that God had told him to go in the first place. He returns to the place that God had promised to give to him. But more importantly, Abram builds another altar and he begins again to call on the name of the Lord. So before this whole episode happens in chapter 12 verse 8, we're told that Abram called on the name of the Lord in the land that God had promised him. And now again, in 13 verse 4, we're told that Abram calls on the name of the Lord in the land that God promised him. But through this whole crisis, through this whole intervening crisis in the land of Egypt, there'd been no altar, there'd been no calling on the name of the Lord. Through this whole crisis, the famine, the lies about Sarah, through this whole crisis, Abraham had forgotten to call on the name of the Lord. He'd forgotten to trust that God would do what he'd promised to do. Abram was scared by what was happening. I mean, wouldn't you be scared? God says, go to the land, and the land 
is afflicted by a severe famine. Abram's scared and he takes matters into his own hands. He's scared so he flees to Egypt. He's scared about what Pharaoh might do and so he lies about his wife. And he never once called on God or sought God's help or sought God's wisdom. Well, it's a distressingly easy mistake to make, I think, isn't it? Some drama hits our life and instead of calling out to God we immediately put our plans into action. So the tests from the doctor come back showing a problem. And with the doctor, we work out our healthcare plan. Our business faces difficult times and we plunge hours and hours into trying to work our way out of it, to work out what the way forward is. One of our relationships comes under strain. And we spend sleepless nights thinking about what it is that we could say that would make it better. The kids are struggling at school and we read countless things in books and on the internet trying to work out how it is that we can help them with their learning difficulties. You plan, you make decisions, you consult with all kinds of people, which which is a good thing to do. But it gets six months down the track and you realise that six months of planning have passed and you've never prayed to God about it. You've never called on the name of the Lord. You've never sought God's wisdom. You've never opened the Bible to try and work it out. Maybe there's some hidden wisdom from God that might help. The problem is also not just that we forget to seek God, The problem is that because we forget to seek God, we end up making poor choices. It's sobering to reflect, I think, on just how far Abram and Sarai went. They didn't just stumble a little bit and life got a bit difficult. Abram gave up his wife to another man so that they would be safe. In the same way, we fail to trust God and we fail to call out to God and we take things into our own hands and we make bad choices. We end up living in Egypt and palming our wife off to another man. In the first scene, we find Abram the man who had trusted God, trusted God enough to leave his homeland. We find Abram, the man who trusted God, still needs to learn to trust God all the time. Well, if the first scene shows Abram learning that difficult lesson, the next two two scenes show him in a slightly better light. Uh, Abram navigates this threat of the famine, albeit poorly, but in chapter 13, a new threat emerges to the promise. Uh, And we'll keep reading from chapter 13 until the end of that chapter. So uh, Exodus chapter 13, uh, from verse 5. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarrelling arose between Abram's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abram said to Lot, 
let's not have any quarrelling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of the Jordan was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt towards Zoar. That was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were great, sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted with him, Lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south and east and west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then the offspring could be counted. Go walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of memory at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. In the first scene, the promise seemed to be endangered by famine. In this second scene, the promise seems to be under threat from bickering and division between Abram's uh, men and Lot's men. The dispute arises between the herdsmen who are fighting for space for the cattle to graze and Abram decides to uh, settle things by suggesting that he and Lot part company. And he gives the choice, Abram gives this choice to Lot he gives him the first choice of the land. If, if uh, Lot chooses to go left, then Abram will go right and uh, vice versa. And Lot uh, lifts up his eyes and he looks at the, uh, the options before him and he chooses the plain of the Jordan, which was well watered and, he, uh, and uh, he sees that it looks good and so he decides to go in that direction, leaving Abram to go to Canaan. It's important to understand, I think, that the place that Lot chooses is outside the promised land, or at the very least, it's right on the very edge of the promised land. It's also away from Abram. Abram, the man that God had promised to bless. So Lot is making a theologically loaded decision about where to move. Lot is removing himself from the sphere of God's promises to Abram from the promised land and the promised man. The folly of Lot's choice is indicated by the fact that twice in this chapter we're told that he's heading off to Sodom, a place which was known already in that day for its sin and the place that God would later destroy because of its sin. Lot's choice is based on what he can see before him. He sees that the land looks like good land, it's well watered, but it's made irrespective of the spiritual condition of the place that he's going to. The temptation that Lot faced, I think, is a surprisingly subtle choice, a surprisingly subtle temptation. We have a decision to make, and we, like Lot, we look at the options, and we look, I think, often superficially. We look at the options and we can see that one, one uh, option is not heading in a particularly good direction, but perhaps we think that we're stronger than we really are. Perhaps that's what Lot thought. Well, the men of Sodom are sitting, sinning greatly, but I know that I'll be able to stand up to the temptations and the tests that I'll face there. 
Sometimes what looks like good choices actually means distancing ourselves from God. Well, I'll go over to that land there. It is on the edge of the promised land, isn't it? It is away from the the man that God has chosen to bless, but perhaps uh, it will still work out okay in the end. We, We end up distancing ourselves from God. It might be a career decision. It might be that the industry or the workplace that you want to join is not a great industry and not a great workplace. It's not a great place to be a Christian. It's the kind of place that wears Christians down, the kind of place that drags Christians away from their faith. It might be best in those situations to let that job go. It might be a friendship that keeps dragging you away from God. It keeps dragging you, so to speak, to the edge of the promised land. Fundamentally, the problem is that some other category trumps our relationship with God. For Lot, it was the land trumped his relationship with God. For others, it might be career. For others, it might be happiness. For others, it might be family and relationship or an overwhelming desire to have children. For some, it might be a sense of security outside of God. But our pursuit of those things trumps our pursuit of God. And so we make decisions that slowly move us away from God. I was uh, uh, talking the other night uh, with some people remembering a man uh, who'd been in my church when I grew up. Uh, And one Sunday his wife went home and he was not there anymore. Uh, And it turned out he'd sold his business without anyone knowing and he'd run off with another woman. He was a respected man in the church and in the community. And I said... How does somebody get to that point where they think it's better to run off with another woman than to stay in their marriage and to stay true to their Christian belief? And someone replied, they do it little by little. Small compromises small lot-like decisions that distance us from God and take us to the edge and outside the promised land. Nobody ever wakes up and says to themselves, I think I'll abandon Jesus today. They do what Lot did and slowly edge away. Well, in contrast to Lot, at the end of the chapter, we find Abram, the man who faced a similar challenge in Egypt. We find Abram lifting up his eyes too. And God once again reiterating his promise to give the land to Abram. And once again, Abram settles in the land and he builds an altar and he praises God. And in stark contrast to what happened in Egypt, where he couldn't trust God, here in chapter 13, Abram does. The difference between these two men, Abram and Lot, couldn't be more pronounced. Lot chooses the place that looks good, that looks productive, that looks attractive, but is ultimately godless, while Abram trusts God. He trusts God enough, in fact, to
to let Lot have the first choice of where to go. You see, generosity of that nature requires trust. It requires trust in God, not trust in people, but trust in God. It requires trust that God will provide. If you don't trust that God will provide like Abram trusted that God would provide, you can't be generous. Because you'll be thinking, well, how am I going to, how is this all going to work out? I need to hang on to as much of, uh, as I can in case things go pear-shaped down the track. I mean, it just, Abram had just faced the famine, hadn't he? What happens if that happens again? But no, Abram is a new man who trusts God more deeply than he did before. And he offers Lot the first choice of the land. Lot couldn't trust God. And so the good-looking land trumped his relationship with God. Abram could trust God. And so he was able to be generous. Well, in that first scene, we find Abram, the man who trusted God, learning that he needs to trust God all the time. In the second scene in chapter 13, we find Abram trusting God and Lot moving away from God. And in the last scene in chapter 14, we find Abram once again displaying himself as a man who trusts God in another way. So we'll read from uh, chapter 14 where the promise seems to be under threat from war. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Kedeleomah, king of Elam and Tidal, king of Goyim, went to war against Berah, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Soar. Zadizoah. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedalaomah, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedalaomah and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashtarot, Kanaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shivei Kerathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir. As far as El Paran, Near the desert. Then they turned back and went to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and grew up and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedalaomah, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Once the one who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. 
During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobar, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Ketaleoma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram, saying, blessed be, God by, blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshkol and Mamre. Let them have their share. Well, the sheer folly of Lot's choice in stepping away from God's protection of Abram and in stepping outside the promised land now really becomes clear, doesn't it? Because he gets caught up in this war between rogue kings. He's captured by these uh, kings and Abram has to rescue him. What happened uh, is a bit hard to follow, but essentially there are five kings who decide to rebel against another king, Ketaleomar, after being subject to him for 12 years. And Ketaleomar doesn't take kindly to that. He joins with a number of other kings. And then those uh, four kings sweep down and recapture their land. When they do that, Lot gets caught up in the warfare and he's taken away captive. He's taken to the north uh, towards Dan. And when Abram finds out what's going on, he gathers his men, his troops, uh, and he makes chase to the north and he intercepts uh, the other kings and he rescues Lot. But what's really interesting in this chapter is not the warfare, but what happens when Abram gets back afterwards. On returning, he meets two kings. He meets Melchizedek and he meets the king of uh, uh, Salem. No, sorry, the king of Sodom. The first, uh, the king Melchizedek is a king of Salem or Jerusalem and Melchizedek brings out wine and bread. There's nothing special about that. It's just kind of the basic food of the day. And Melchizedek comes out to meet Abram and he blesses Abram and he says this, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hand. The blessing is is basically a prayer. It's a prayer that God would look after Abram and a prayer also that God would be honoured. Abram's response to this prayer is remarkable. He gives a tenth of what he has to Melchizedek. So we're not talking, you know, giving away a tenth of your income every week. Talking about sitting down and working out all that you have and in one fell swoop, giving away a tenth of it. I looked up the ABS data on, uh, on median net worth, household net worth in Australia. Uh, so in 2011 to 2012, the median net worth of a household in Australia was $434,000. So kind of the middle of the road house. 
household in Australia, or the middle of the road household in Australia, has $434,000. So to do what Abram did would be like giving away in one go $43,000. If if you're a bit younger like me, uh, if you're below the age of 35, then the median net worth is $136,000. So that's a bit less. But that's still giving away $14,000 in one go, isn't it? That's a, that's a remarkable amount of money. Why does he do it? He does it because Melchizedek comes and prays that God would do what he's promised. The second king that Abram meets is the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom says to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. That is, you know, take all the spoil of war. And Abram says this, I've raised my hand to the Lord, the God most high, creator of heaven and earth. I've taken an oath, I'll accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that no one will ever be able to say, I've made Abram rich. In other words, he says, thanks, but no thanks. He's just given away 10% of all he has. He still doesn't want more. Why is that? Because he doesn't want people to think that they've made Abram rich. He wants people to know that if Abram is blessed, God has blessed him. It shows how much Abram has grown in trusting God, doesn't it? In the space of a few chapters, he left Egypt with all the spoils of a deceitful life. But now he rejects the offers of of the spoils of war and gives a tenth of all he has away. It would be a mistake for us, I think, to think that the uh, message of this passage is that we shouldn't accept gifts from people who aren't Christians. That's not the point. The essence of what Abram did is this. He refused to take from somebody else what God had promised to give. He refused to take from somebody else what God had promised to give. Every day, people promise us the very things that God has promised to give us as well. You turn on the television and the things that people are promising you are the very things that God promises. Forgiveness, reconciliation, a new world, joy, hope, peace. You read books and the message that they sell, the message that they want you to embrace The thing that they're selling you is the very thing that God has promised to give. If only we buy their product or follow their seven steps, if only we play their sport or support their political movement. Unlike for Abram, God hasn't promised us wealth, but he has promised us forgiveness in Jesus and a share in a new world and a new creation. God has promised us joy and hope and peace. And the mistake for us would be to try and take that from others when God has promised to give it to us in Jesus. To try and take from other people what they in fact have no power to give us. To try and take a thing which only Jesus can give. Well, Abram doesn't do that because he's a man who's grown in trusting God. Genesis 12, 13 and 14 show Abram learning to trust God more and more deeply. We're saved by trusting God. But 
by trusting what God says about Jesus. We're saved by trusting the gospel. But like Abram, we don't trust God 100% straight away. The Christian life is a life of growing in trust. And the more we trust God, the more he gets the glory. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we see the events of Abram's life and they resonate so closely with us. Lord, the idea of sort of trusting you and yet sort of taking things into our own hands. Taking things into our own hands and making bad choices which hurt other people and which dishonour you. Lord, we look at the choice that Lot made and, Lord, we know that so often we make small choices and big choices which move us further away from you. Lord, forgive us for that and teach us to trust in Jesus Christ. Teach us to hold fast to him and to consider everything else rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ and being found in him. Help us to, like Abram say, I won't take anything from you which God has promised to give. Help us to trust you, Lord, implicitly in everything that we do. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.